There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord. Saying, who shall I send? Who shall I send? Go for us. Go for us. That gives like a virus. Welcome back. Sorry for the delay on this uh, last installment here, Um, but here we are, so let's do it. I wanted to touch base on my position once more just to set the table, make sure we're all on the same page with my goal going into this. The Giants discussion sparked some conversations, obviously, mostly in a great way. I've had a few discussions with people that got bumped by something I said. It caused a reaction. It's like Twitter. Twitter gave access to millions of people that want their voice heard, but we lost our ability to pause, pause and reflect, look at something from a different perspective. Plato wrote a paper on this idea, and it's called The Allegory of the Cave. It was one of his most brilliant perspectives on the world. The basic premise is the thought that a group of prisoners are sent to prison with a very strange punishment assigned to them. They're put in a cave, chained up since childhood. They're forced to face the wall away from the opening of the cave. So their, you know, their comprehension of what the outside world has in store for them is based off of what? Exactly. It's the shadows that dance on the wall. You can imagine the many discussions that could come off of this. And when the prisoners were allowed to turn around and see the outside, then go outside, what they once saw as their reality has now been turned up to 11, as they say in Spinal Tap. These go to 11. The shadow of the guard is now a man in full radiant color. The grass, the sun, the wind, his eyes are burning. His brain is spinning, trying to catch up on what he always thought as his truth and then going to the puppet show and seeing the strings. Needless to say, his worldview has just leveled up. As I said in a couple episodes back, we as a people have gotten used to the darkness, to the dull. So when presented with ideas that there is more out there than you can possibly imagine, it can be overwhelming. It requires growth or maybe just pure denial. You can feel this fight as you grow up and your adult problems with scripture and life start to outgrow your safe little Sunday school answers. That can be jarring. And thus, the genesis of me doing this project, you fight against it even. You don't want to believe it or you just refuse to accept it. There is no truer statement than innocence is bliss. (laughs) There's a great Bible story about this perspective and depth of connection to the supernatural and the other realms in the heavens. It's in 2 Kings with Elisha, the star student of Elijah, the prophet, very similar names, I know. The Syrian army had encircled the city of Dothan, not Dothan, Alabama, but I love that town. Shout out to Dothan National Golf Club and Hotel. They have horses and soldiers. It's the middle of the night. It's not looking good for those in the city, and that included Elisha and his crew. One of the crew freaks out and goes to Elisha and says, quote, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he, Elisha, answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed. This is me jumping in here. What do you think he prayed for? 
more soldiers, more weapons. Nope. Let's see what he said. He said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. End quote. See that? He prayed for the servant's eyes to be opened, not that the heavenly army be made visible. You know why? Because the army of the angels was not invisible. They were just imperceivable to this guy. It makes me think of that scene in Hook, you know, where the Lost Boys are trying to get Peter, played by Robin Williams, R.I.P. He wants them to see like them. The heavenly army was there. But the regular citizens of the town just couldn't wrap their head around the idea that God had a legion fighting for us in, the, in a dimension that we can't fathom. But Elijah could. He'd seen it before. This is old hat. And he simply asked if they could see what a God had allowed him to see. I think it's like being a goldfish in a kid's room. It's not that they're in another dimension or in another time or space. They're in our world. They even play by our rules, by our laws and physics, I mean. They just have a small, small source of reference for how they can even process what is happening. It's like putting a dog in a crate in the belly of an airplane. Can you imagine the thoughts in that animal's mind? I'm way off topic here, like I like to do. But my point on the shadow experiment is it's just to push you guys. So the person that just sits in their level of comfort on topics and never gets a chance to see the forest through the trees, in the absence of knowledge, superstition wins. Remember that. And I want to get first into a beautiful pattern that arises and it deals with the holy of holies, the hot spot of hot spots, God's center square. That is the ark. Not that ark, but I might just have given away what I'm talking about here. I'm referring to the ark of the covenant, the middle vital holding piece that sits inside the temple and inside the inner chamber. This is where God's spirit, you know, it comes down to meet with his people. And before Solomon built the temple, it was a tabernacle, a.k.a. a tent. Remember? Same idea. What exactly is in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, that would be the stone tablets that Moses brought down with the Jewish laws written on them, and that included the Ten Commandments, a.k.a. the Word of God. It also probably had the staff of Aaron in there, maybe a pot of manna, but you know that's to be debated. The scriptures tell us that this Ark needed to be built out of wood and overlaid inside and out with pure gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it. Does that sentence remind you of anything? Any other structures that were commanded to be built the same way, inside and out? This sentence structure only happens twice in the Hebrew text, and if there is one thing I hope you have learned from these podcasts and teachings, is that whenever something like this happens, we pause. God commands another item to be made out of wood and inlaid inside and out by another object, very similar pattern, Okay, so what I want us to do when this starts happening is get to the why. Alarms. Okay, the Bible authors are bringing these two items to my attention and comparing them. Why? That's my job as a Bible reader. It's not just for fun. This isn't Mad Libs. It's not Wordle or Sudoku. There are no coincidences in the biblical text. So let's take a walk around this and see what the author is doing to us. All right, let me get my glasses on, get in my leather chair, get my jacket. Okay. All right, the ark has gold all over it. Got that. All right, now let's look at Noah's ark. It is overlaid inside and out with something, and it sure ain't gold. It's pitch. What the heck is pitch? It's kind of the opposite of shiny gold, if you ask me. 
not much of a comparison. Pitch is a sticky, smelly, black material used to keep the water out. It makes the wood watertight. Gold is smooth, shiny, beautiful. It doesn't smell terrible. All right, Tyler, I get that. I get that they're both wooden boxes and they seem to have special meaning to God and they're both covered inside and out. But after that, it kind of fades off. We got one box that houses the Ten Commandments. The other's a massive ship that holds the hope of humanity in its belly. Maybe you're overthinking this one. And maybe you're right. Let's just keep at it for a second. You never know. Let's, let's do our Encyclopedia Brown and Nancy Drew. Let's think on this. They both seem to be mirrors of the other with regards to their function, right? Maybe we lean into that. God, man, ark, worlds. Let's start with God. As we talked about in the last episode, this world post-flood is a little more of our world than his. He's, he's pulled back a touch. More calluses on this place now. It's been through the ringer. Maybe I've said this before, but you know, screw it, I'll say it again. It's from Rabbi David Foreman. Imagine that. And it's this discussion of the Monopoly board. You guys know Monopoly, right? So the thought of it is we have these pieces on the board. They're having a discussion. You got the shoe, the top hat. They're having a dialogue. The shoe says to the hat, do you believe in the Parker brothers? And the hat replies, what do you mean? And the shoe says, you know how the edge of our world, it has the writing on it. And it says made by Parker brothers. Do you think they exist? And the hat says, look, I've been around here a long time, man. I go around the block. I do my job. I pass go. I collect two hundo. I pay my taxes. I've gotten free parking. I ain't never seen Parker. He's not real. And the shoe says, no, no, not inside the board, the creator of the board. He exists outside of our world and our rules. The creator of the system exists outside the system. See that? So this thought might help you with our discussions as we get into, you know, when you get bumped in college by that professor, you have doubts of your own. One of my daughters has a very hard time with the concept of eternity. Outside of how time affects our every move, I have used this idea to help her with that. Different rules for those that made the rules, you know? That, or I just put on Interstellar and let, you know, McConaughey do his thing. All right, all right, all right. What am I talking about? All right, back on track. Exodus 25, quote, Make for me a holy place, and I will dwell among them, end quote. The ark is where the presence of God would reside, in a cloud above. So it's like God's place on earth. What is the end goal of the Christians and the Jews? And the Jews, it's not just heaven. It's not sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Yes, we are in paradise immediately with Jesus when we die. We know that from the thief that was strung up next to him, but that's not the final boss. The end goal for all is Eden, heaven and earth overlapping, fully integrated, all one again. So the ark is a little blip of that. It's God's space here on earth. Like I said, his T-Mobile hotspot... Okay, well, if the pitch on Noah's Ark is the opposite of gold, then let's flip it. Let's flip our thinking and see if that is what the author is doing to us here and the reason for the callback. We don't live in God's world. But what if we were just thrust into it again? Pre-creation world. You know what I'm saying? What about that? Utter chaos. Remember from the last one? Formless and void, wild and waste, wind of God over the dark waters that is everywhere. Flood waters. We discussed that in the last episode or maybe one before that. Creation being undone, redo, hitting the reset. And that looks like page one of the Bible again. That's not an accident. It never is. 
And how do we, the humans, fare in an environment like that? Not too well, as it turns out. Maybe that is the role of the ark. Protection of us as we are in God's world. The vehicle through which we could pull off that rough terrain. A space shuttle in the vacuum of space, safely in God's terrifying pre-creation state. The flood, as he is working his magic. Okay, maybe you see the Hebrew wordplay here and the inverse meaning of the arcs and their coverings and meanings. Anything else, Tyler? This isn't really that cool thus far. All right, one more thing, and it's called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary structure in a story where the first element mirrors the last. The second item mirrors the second to the last, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, blah, blah, blah. So think about it like this. A, B, C, C, B, A. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. You know, sort of like that. Just to give you a frame of reference, this happens thousands of times in the biblical story, by the way. Yes, that many times. It is beyond brilliant and clever. It is baffling. Well, we got one here, and you know what? It's with the arcs. Watch this. Let's start with the thing that we have already, that sentence inside and out. Obviously, that appears in both. Let's go to another word, cover. Cover it inside and out. That is in both. In both. Keep going. Is there more? Yep. There are two words together on both, and they are edges and faces. See if you can find them. Check the reverse order. Stay with that, and you have the dimensions of both. God shows Moses and Noah what the length, width, and height need to be for both arcs. And yes, they are continuing in the exact opposite order. Then God shows them that the shape will become clear to them. How? Because God is going to show you. This goes on and on, man. I'm not going to go through them all because I'll lose you. I'm probably already lost you. But I want to wrap up on this topic with one more thought, and that is the creamy center, man. The center of the chiasm is always the focus. When you see this in scripture, you want to keep going until you find the Tootsie Roll in the middle of the Tootsie Pop. At the end of Exodus 24 and going into 25, we have a time frame brought up. Quote, Moshe went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. Hear that covering? <clears throat> the glory of the Lord resided on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moshe from within, from within the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in plain view of the people. This is me popping in here. Do you see the hotspot motif that is being presented here? This is divine space, sacred area. God is touching down on the mountain, the hotspot I'll keep talking about. Think of a Venn diagram and two topics in the shape of circles and the common theme overlapping in the middle. And what was the state of Eden? What is the state of the new holy city at the end of Revelation in the new heaven and the new earth? Anybody? That's right. Just like I said, heaven and earth overlapping, just as it always should have been. Not God up there and us down here. Overlaid, shingled Eden. Okay, back to the book. Moses went into the cloud when he went up the mountain and Moshe was on top of the mountain. How long? 40 days and 40 nights. Come on, man. Do I even have to read you the time frame from Genesis with Noah? Oh, I do? Fine. Okay, here, listen to this. And on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of heaven were opened and the rain fell on the earth for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. Boom. It goes on to say that as the waters increased, they lifted the ark and raised it above the earth, end quote. Okay, so the center of the chiasm is the topic of 40 days and 40 nights. Great, Tyler. What do I do with that? 
That's right. We sit on it. We don't move until it becomes something beautiful because it is. Quick question. We see here that the waters from the rain cloud and the mist below increase and they do what to this ark made of wood? They lift the ark and raise it above the earth. See how the other ark of the covenant made out of wood transported across the land? Yep, they raise it off the ground and carry it. No dragging, no wheels, tent poles lifted by chosen people. We have rain descending onto the ark and lifting it up. And with Moses, we have a chosen priest ascending into the cloud to meet God. It's the idea of preparing for God's presence. These arks are the vehicle for which to allow God to be with us and not destroy us. We used to have access to this. We will again one day, but right now we have sin. God can't be near it. He is holy, preparing us to be in the center of the creator, in the presence of the creator of the world. We got to come correct. So is God dangerous, Tyler? No, it's, it's more that he's unique. The one and only creative force powerful enough to create the entire cosmos. A very simple metaphor is the sun, which I've mentioned in previous episodes. The power of the sun is baffling. It's a million atomic bombs going off all day long. And yet its gentle glow on a warm day is somewhat comforting. It blossoms flowers. It heats the land and the seas. And you can't help but say, ah, when you're standing in its radiance. However, what happens when you get too much sun? What happens to entities in space as they approach the sun or get too close? They are annihilated. This is a good way to think of God's presence, his power. Sidebar, that is why the sun and moon and stars are set as signs and symbols in Genesis. They give us light and heat and beauty. But as Moses had to remind the Jewish people in Deuteronomy, do not worship them. You are going to want to worship them because they are awesome. And I don't mean it like a 90s kid, which I am. I mean truly inspiring awe. But they are just a sign of God's light. There is no sun in the new heaven and earth. It's just God's light. These are reminders of that. That's in Deuteronomy 4, by the way, if you want to check me. So same thing here. God is doing something big in both of these very famous Sunday school lessons. If we are impure and come in contact with Yahweh, it is dangerous, not because it is bad, but because it is so good. It's overwhelming. It drinks our milkshake, as Daniel Plainview says. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Moses gets a taste of that at the burning bush where God says, don't come any closer, not to scare him. But so he didn't vaporize the guy. He's on holy land. So the final resting place of the Ark of the Covenant was inside the temple. And if you read the Bible, you will see multiple examples of what happens when people approach the Holy of Holies and have not prepared their mind, body, and spirit. It does not go well. Spoiler alert. The preparation by the priest to go into this area, which happens one day a year, was extensive. And that was for his safety. We need to get the death and decay out of our presence. That's the idea of being ritualistically pure. You don't become perfect as a human being. You get your aura, your aura in a good place. You don't just waltz into God's presence and be okay. It's just not how he set things up. And to bring it back to the ark that Noah was in, I think that's the inverse. God is about to decreate. Remember, he is about to bring chaos waters back onto the scene as I set the stage in the last episode, this is a terrifying and sad turn of events. 
Just as we had gotten death and decay out of our character and mood and spirit to approach the Ark of the Covenant, what this is saying is that death is about to literally be all around us in this Ark. Everything outside of the Ark is passing away and expiring. Noah and his family are inside the Ark for their safety. That's the connection with the chiasm. And all the similarities we read about, the edges and faces, the covering, overlaying inside and out, the shape will become clear, 40 days and nights, the vehicle for God's presence to come near us to survive that encounter. Lastly, any other times do you see 40 days and 40 nights? Any other chaos moments that have waters involved in God's spirit as a presence? Maybe a tester or an adversary checking a temple figure for weak spots? Absolutely. This is how it is until we get to a man named Jesus who flips the model on its head once again. And every time I read about this, I still get goosebumps. We got John the Baptist, which might be my next topic of discussion, taking Jesus under the waters, coming up as a changed entity. God's spirit hovering over the waters. Hello, page one. And then where is Jesus sent immediately? Out into the wilderness to be tested for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. (laughs) Come on, man. So the teachings of Isaiah and Ezekiel, they come through with Jesus. No longer do we insulate and isolate to be pure. Jesus's purity now goes outward. His living water flows out. So we take the purity of the inner chamber of the temple and we take it to the ends of the world. The veil is split in two. Goodness is released outward and now it's for everyone. We go touch the lives of others and as we go, we are salt and light. We are image bearers like Jesus would be walking around and touching the impure. Remember that? He would just make them clean as he's walking around touching them. That's our job as Jesus followers. Little by little, we attack the darkness and we keep waking the dead that we all once were. The zombies that we were before Christ changed us. Then all we are called to do is tell others, no, we're becoming pure first and then coming into God's presence. Now holiness flows out and makes things new. Walking, talking temples over and over. Amen. Man, I love this stuff. All right. Last topic, I promise. Last topic on Noah. Let's round of applause here. This one's not too fun. You know, I, I don't know why this is my mantra. My wife makes fun of me about this. She's like, when are you going to get to the New Testament? Do something, you know, let's get to the, 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 the nice parts. <laughs> this is the drunken scene in the tent with Noah and his sons. Okay. This is a dark one. As I have said, fair warning here, not safe for work. This is going to cover a subject that is tough. Any way you slice it. Whether you agree with my stance or any others that you have heard, this is not a fun story, but it's there. It's in the text. It wasn't put there for effect or to stir us up for no reason. This is the point of the Sunday School Out is pod. As my description says below the artwork in iTunes, follow me down the rabbit hole and watch your mind change. You have heard a sermon on this topic, I bet, and seen. And this is another one where... Through no fault of our own, you didn't get the weight of this one. English messes up the Hebrew sentence structure, and I don't think that was intentional, blah, blah, blah. But here we go. Watch this. This was covered in an article that I read. Michael Heiser covered it in his podcast. But this was one of the best and most thought-provoking stances on that scene with Noah and his nakedness in the tent. It makes so much more sense once you hash, hash everything out. 
The article is by John Seats Bergma and Scott Walker Hahn. It was in 2005 it was written. Very heady, actually, but, you know, I can give you the basics and it'll resonate, trust me. As always, let's start with the text and we'll go from there. There's going to be some redundancy here. I'm quoting from Genesis 9 in the ESV. ESV's interpretation is most helpful for this one. FYI, that's why I'm using it. Here we go. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah became a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. End quote. Quick little story post-flood that, uh, you know, I wouldn't say is popular. That's not the right word, but it's pretty well known. Maybe you've heard this story or, or some implication of it, but it's pretty straightforward if you look at it face value, right? If you aren't familiar with idioms from thousands of years ago, which, of course, is a stupid thing to say, but obviously you're not. But if you had a few of those famous sayings in your mind, this story would be so clear. <laughs> when I say an idiom or an idiomatic saying, it's something like... Uh, you know, I feel I feel under the weather. You know what I'm saying? It means I feel sick, I'm ill, or if I say, pull yourself together, man. Get it together. Same thing. You know what I mean? All cultures, geographies, they have these still today. They're still confusing now, despite how connected the whole earth is, and I hope that keeps going. Shout out to my Norwegian brothers and sisters. Uh, I've got a quite a following in, in Norway for some reason, so uh, I'm going to try and use one of their idioms right here. Listen to this. They have a very famous one that's called Ugler Emosen. Maybe my Norwegian might be better than my Hebrew, but I doubt it. Ugler Emosen in English means owls in the moss. And the best way to convey what that means is something fishy's going on. That's how we would say it in America. Again, another saying. So I think you get what I'm saying when I say I'm under the weather. You're not thinking I'm literally under the skies or, you know, anything about that's that's the stupid way to think about it. it's just to set the frame of reference it can be taken incorrectly and i think that is what is happening in this story on the surface when you read it once over it's not that confusing maybe the social construct and reactions seem to they seem a little over the top to us it's, it's not really that big of a deal the youngest brother is being annoying he sees his dad get drunk he's got no clothes on he thinks this is noteworthy probably funny he thinks to himself aha opportunity to be hilarious so he goes and tells his brother for them to enjoy it with him his brothers are a bit more mature and they don't see the humor here they do the adult thing they don't they want to spare their father any further embarrassment so they take a blanket and they go cover the poor guy up they respectfully walk in backwards not to see his naked body again maybe a bit much to us as that's understandable the dad wakes up hung over in a bad mood he fires off a curse to his son for making a mockery of him and scene possibly oversimplified that but you know you tell me does that sound like maybe it's something that possibly happened here it always did to me before ever digging in on this but there might be more to the story here first question you might raise is and mine was 
Why is Ham's son Canaan the one who gets cursed? What, what did this kid do? Did you catch that? Read the last part and see Noah's reaction. Quote, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son, who's Ham, had done to him, he said, cursed is Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. End quote. What? Was Canaan even in the scene? Now that you mention it, the text goes out of its way twice to let us know that Ham was the father of Canaan. It sets the table for us and we didn't even catch it. Do I have your attention yet? That's the part of this tale that is the crux. It's weird. Why? It doesn't make sense. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. I might have glossed past the story too quickly. You might have heard or been taught something else. I've seen and found everything from a castration, a homosexual act from Ham to Noah. Told you it was a tough story. But none of those help explain the curse of Canaan as a result. It, that, that doesn't connect the dots to me. Something happened in that tent. Something terrible. I believe we can all agree on that. This story was included to show us that on this side of the flood, we have a tragic, traumatic family abuse story, and we are supposed to unpack it. So let's keep going. I need to circle back to the wordplay here, though, as it gets us through where we're going pretty easily. I'm sure I've done this before, but another good way to think about how poorly of a job we can do at studying the Bible is forgetting that it was written thousands of years ago on a different continent is to think that the way we spoke and they spoke and relayed information and humor and sadness, we don't get it. It it would be crystal clear to us. I mean, let's say we're, let's go the other way. Let's say we're 3000 years in the future. Think, Think of the same exact process, trying to understand what's going on. I'd imagine that world's pretty different. Even the notion of sport or athletics, maybe, I don't know. But what if a flyer or a poster was dug up and found you know, maybe it was one left in a time capsule. The new future people open it up and see an image. Lots of colors on it, two opposing figures on each side. The words Super Bowl, L-V-I-I, are at the top. It's a picture of an arrowhead with a K and a C in the middle in red. On the other is a giant eagle head from someplace called Philly. If I can scan that document and think about it the same way that most of us think of these Bible stories, you can get to a pretty fantastical place pretty quickly. You see that? Some intellectual from a history department might give you a guess and say, it appears that in the distant past, they would have sporting events between different species of animals and a man to see who was dominant. This one appears to be a group that was connected to the Native Americans in the past, and they fought against different birds of prey. This one being an eagle that appears to be Kelly Green for some reason, and the prize they are going for looks like a giant bowl, a super bowl, if you will. See what I'm saying? Cultural context is obviously huge in the biblical studies, hell in any study of history. Let me show you what I mean on that scene from the tent. I'm going to use the Bible as a reference point for the Bible. I'm going to jump to the rules section of Leviticus for a minute, and you will see why pretty quickly. I want you to see if you can guess what they're talking about regarding the sin here. The sin or the rule or the violation in this when they talk about the nakedness in this portion. Because that is a Hebrew idiom or a turn of phrase, and with that little bit of a pause, you will see it. At least I hope you do. This is from chapter 20, Leviticus, and this section is discussing sexual holiness and morality in the community, the code of rules to live that the Jewish people need to live by. Quote, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of the people. 
He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his inequity. End quote. Okay, what do you think that idiom is describing right there? Do you take it literally from the English and think this is about seeing the sister's nakedness or vice versa? I don't either. I think it's sexual intercourse. Uncovering is the key word. Uncovering and seeing the nakedness. Same expression with two different verbs. Now, if you do a quick word search for that phrase in the text, you will see it over and over as that being the reference point. That is the sin here. It's not being nude in a room and your sister happens to walk in. I don't see them cutting you off from the people groups for that. I don't see you getting expelled or disowned from your family for that. But sexual relations, yeah, that's a, that's a big problem. So let's go on. This is a couple chapters earlier in 18. Same topic. This is basically the category on the holiness code of the people. Same thing. Quote, none of you shall approach any of your close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in the home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, uncovering the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. Verse 15. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. End quote. Now, I know that's pretty repetitive, but, you know, as, as we say, if, if something is repeated, it's important, right? Do you have ears? You should listen. I dragged on there, but I want to harp on a point. So I'm going to say it a couple more verses real fast, just so you can key in on my callback to the tent story with Noah and what I think is going on. Okay, listen again, quoting from verse seven, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Skipping down, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. Verse 14, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. End quote. Newsflash here. Let me bring this phrase to today's vernacular. When it says, do not uncover the nakedness of your father, what it is saying is, do not go near his wife. Do you see that? That is crystal clear to me in these verses. Maybe not before, but after understanding the phrasing and the idioms, it gets pretty straightforward. The nakedness of your father is your mother. This is a patriarchal culture and would not take the amount of time that I had just had to spend on it for them to know what I was talking about. It's the same in the Noah story. This would have been very clear to them. From what I have researched on this and just laid out to you, it's my position that Ham seeing the father of his nakedness is his mother. And it's not looking upon his father's property as his wife. I think Ham had the violation with his mother. That's what I think is going on here. That's the incest. That's the crime. And Ham is so bold, he goes and tells his brothers, guess what I just did? 
they don't see this as a conquest that's worth celebrating. They are appalled, as they should be. And they know the ramifications of laying with the wife of the head of the patriarchal household. This is a huge deal. They come in and see this horrible thing and they try to make it right. Or as much damage control as they can. They do the honorable thing. They cover their poor mom. They want no association with this act. And they want no chance of being looped into this event and what was involved in the deep pain and hurt of what has just happened. They try and help in the most respectful way they can. That's what I see happening. Okay, that's the crime, and it's horrific. So let's get to the sentence that was laid out by the leader of the clan, the the curse of Canaan. The main reason I think that is correct is it the only one that explains the curse falling on the grandson instead of Ham. I think Canaan is the illegitimate baby here, the product of this terrible sin. Like I said, it goes out of the way to let us know that Ham was the father of Canaan in the story. Very out of place early on in the first few sentences. Why is that there? It is telegraphing that Ham is the father of Canaan. And by cursing Canaan, Noah lets everyone know that Canaan is not going to be in line to inherit this family leadership from here on out. Because his birth was not legitimate. This is not a blessing. Because his attempt here was to take over. To usurp the family tree. And Noah is having none of it. This is a competitive offspring from his father's bed. This happens a number of times in the Bible. Go check on Reuben, who does it later. That's Genesis 35, 22. Another example is King David. He took Saul's wives and concubines right after the Bathsheba story. I can't get into that right now. By the way, David's son Absalom, he does the same thing to David that David did to Saul. It happens over and over again. It's a taunt. It's intentional. Ham did it first. The intent is to have the son take the reins in this new world post-flood. He wants the future of the human race to go through his line. He's taking the instructions of being fruitful and multiply on his own terms as we as humans love to do. Noah says that this line is going to be a line of servants. And Cain is Canaan's going to outlive Ham. So the curse goes to him. Yeah, but Tyler, the curse happens right after the act, doesn't it? I mean, the kid wasn't even born yet. How can he be cursed if the nine or ten months for the baby to be born haven't even happened yet? Good point. That is fair and makes sense. However, let me go back a few lines early and I'll show you what the biblical authors do sometimes to compress time. Let's look at Genesis 5, it's 32, and see what the author did when he says, quote, After Noah was 500 years old, Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, Yepheth, end quote. That should not be taken that Noah's wife had triplets. That's not what happened. You just read it as he had three sons over the course of time. It's not worth getting into the details into the birth and how long they take. You just infer that from the story that Noah had three kids. I think that's the same with Ham and Canaan. So I don't think Noah woke up and just started cursing the kid. I think it was over time. And because of what happened here, this is his decree for the punishment. Now, that may be a stretch to you as a listener in hearing this for the first time, but over my years in this topic, this view makes the most coherent case for the curse of Canaan. No, it is not perfect. As I have said, I am not a biblical scholar, but this answers the question of why he gets cursed and Ham does not. Doesn't it? It did for me, so I wanted to cover it. I think it's important. See the idiom. See the full picture. Zoom out and think about it. That's all I want you to do with this story and any other tough passages of scripture. 
It's going to test you initially. You probably didn't like that story. I don't like it either. But it can strengthen your faith. The Bible is weird, and yet I love it. All right, wrapping up here. I went long, but I just couldn't figure out how to end my thoughts on the Noah saga. Maybe I jumped a shark here, but that section always bugged me. I hate that story, but I needed to cover it because it's about the human condition. How close to God these people were, and they still missed it. They took things into their own hands. We can't help ourselves as humans. It makes me so furious, and it starts with me looking in the mirror. Here is something I have found over and over again. Listen to this. We keep trying to make God like us instead of us becoming more like God. Winners and losers, scoreboards, rules. Maybe it's why we love the concept of sports so much. We want a football game. We want a winner on the board to hand a medal trophy and to take a picture and post it. God's love is so unconditional, it makes us uncomfortable. We don't know what to do with that. We need an enemy to fight against. I know people that came up in a strict biblical upbringing and they sometimes miss the feeling of being in trouble with God because at least they knew where they stood with the guy. I lusted after a woman, smoked a cigarette, lied to my wife. If I do these five things, I'll be back in good standing. Now I'm okay again. That ain't it, gang. God just doesn't love on us like a wonderful human father. Maybe you never even got the wonderful love from a parent and you're in therapy because of it now. But you saw it on TV, didn't you? God is more than that. God is love. Right, John? He is full oneness, full wholeness, not most of the time, all the time. Water is wet all the time. Not sometimes. God won't sit on the bar stool next to us and trash our coworker who's lazy. He loves that dude more than you can imagine. He feels the same way about you and the same about me. Maybe more when we mess up and have to lean on him. That is the majority of the feedback I have gotten from people on this podcast. They haven't thought about these stories in a long time, and that's the Western mind for you. What are the rules? Was Noah a good guy? Did he save all the animals two by two? Got it. Moving on. Moses saved the Jews. Jews are good. Egyptians are bad. Perfect. I will never go back and read that story again. Why would I? I know who the players are. I know who to root for and who to root against. We have lost our wonder. We don't reflect. We need to get that back. Think of any social issue now that is difficult. Gun laws, abortion, civil rights, immigration. You know the talking points on both sides. You can recite them verbatim at this point. They love to get us fighting amongst ourselves and never sitting down and seeing, truly seeing the other side. How did they get to that position? Hell, how did I get to my stance on this? Am I wrong? God forbid we have a meeting point, a point for all of this a way to lock eyes with someone from a completely different perspective and see them how the creator sees them. Was King David a good guy or a bad guy? He did a hell of a lot of horrible, horrible things. So is he good or bad? What team is he on? Democrat, Republican? Just tell me to hate him, dad, and I'll hate him. Or you tell me he's a hero and I'll go to my grave with that info and never try to see it from a different point of view. That way I'll never learn or grow. (laughs) The point is the adversary uses the same tactic on us. Get us busy. Get us checking emails till 10 p.m. Get us hating to come home to that house that has no peace. Get us resentful of our neighbor's car. Repeat till we're 80 in a hospice bed and finally come to that realization of what our trips around the sun have been all about. And I think that is love. As John was sitting on an island alone in exile, he's an old man with achy joints. All his friends that have built up this Jesus movement with him... 
He risked everything and lost everything. They have all been killed in horrible ways. The temple is gone. It's been destroyed in 70 AD. He's got nothing. And he is pinning a letter to send out and spread around the world. And what does he start with? Does he let us know how evil the Romans are and how perfect his side was? Nope. He says, God came down to this earth. He got into the mess, not to condemn us, not to punish us, not to wag his finger in our face and let us know all the ways we've disappointed him and messed up his perfect plan. He said, God is love. Not God was right all along and we were wrong. He is love. He is perfect love that came down in flesh to save us from ourselves and invite us to spend eternity with him. If we will just accept the invitation, follow him, make him king of our life. And John also knows that we as a people that come after him, we have it harder than he did. We didn't see Jesus in person. We don't get to have breakfast with him on the beach after he was dead a few days ago. We have to believe. We have to trust the story, keep the faith, and he is praying for us. And so am I. I'm Tyler Parker, and Sunday School is out. Yeah.